Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. You would think you're in a position of power. You know how much influence you have. But in fact, there are these psychological aspects, these psychological consequences of having power that make us less likely to recognize the times when we say something and it's impacted another person in a way that maybe we wish we hadn't. Welcome back to episode 26, part two of What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Huge thanks to our sponsors and friends over at DonorPerfect who are making this episode possible. Today, I'm interviewing Vanessa Bonds. Vanessa is a social psychologist, an award-winning researcher and teacher, and a professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. She is the author of this incredible new book, you have more influence than you think. And what I love about the way that Vanessa studies influence is that she's really focused on how we underestimate our influence. And I know how relevant this is to fundraisers. In part two, this episode, we're talking all about donor influence and really the power dynamics at play. We talk about how the lack of understanding around influence leads to more restricted funding than your donors actually mean to restrict. And we talk about how you as the fundraiser can address that. Some of what she shares really clarifies why we have different sponsorship and investment levels that align with different benefits to help fundraisers tap into some of the underlying desires of their donors when they can't articulate exactly what they want. And we talk about the need for more transparency on both sides in fundraising conversations if we're truly going to find that alignment and win-win opportunities for everyone involved. If you missed part one, in that episode, we talked all about the influence of a fundraiser, how to maximize it and how to use it appropriately to ensure that your donors feel good and have a sense of conscious choice as they invest deeply in your work. But for this episode, let's dive into how donors might be underestimating their influence and what you can do about it. Let's jump back in and talk to Vanessa. Welcome back, everyone, to part two of this amazing conversation with Vanessa Bonds. We have just been talking about in part one about fundraisers and the influence they have and that you have more influence than you think. And I wanted to separate this series or this into two parts because I think the other really eye-opening part of your book for me was around power and influence and how much people in power underestimate their influence and the relationship between casual suggestions from someone in power and the fact that that leads a lot of folks to just do the thing and this sort of complete disconnect sometimes between what's happening in the moment. And I think this has huge implications for the nonprofit sector and fundraisers in general because of the power dynamic that's set up inherently. 
Absolutely. One of my colleagues, Adam Glinsky, has this great quote that I love to steal from him, which is, when you're in a position of power, your whisper can sound like a shout. And I just think that really sums up what it's like to have power, that it's not just those times when you're formally telling people what to do or going on the offensive and really trying to influence someone in a very formal way, but it's also the little comments that you make, the subtle things, the throwaway remarks, all those things land a lot heavier and a lot weightier on other people who are not in positions of power than we tend to realize. And so it's exactly the time when we are in positions of power that people find it hardest to say no to us. They take the things that we say the most seriously. They're the least likely to speak up against us and say, actually, maybe that's not the greatest idea. And at the same time, one of the fascinating things that I uncovered when I was doing research for this book is that it's also a time when we're least likely to be aware of those dynamics. It's a time when you would think you're in a position of power, you know how much influence you have, but in fact, there are these psychological aspects, these psychological consequences of having power that make us less likely to recognize the times when we say something and it's impacted another person in a way that maybe we wish we hadn't. Mm. Tell me a little bit more about that, those psychological implications of power. Yeah. So one of them is that we're simply less likely to take the perspective of other people when we're in a position of power than when we are not in a position of power. And if you think about this, you know, it might sound bad at first, but it's actually quite just logical. So if you're in a low power position, you really need to figure out what's going on in the high power position people's heads, right? If I need to get resources from someone, the person with the resources is the one with power. And so I really want to think about what motivates them. Did something I say offend them? But if you're the one who's in power, you just don't have to worry about those things as much. And so you just naturally don't consider other people's perspectives as much. You can say something and not worry for an hour later about whether someone took it the wrong way. So we're just less likely to do that. And because of that, we may not realize that someone did take something we said the wrong way, that someone did run with something that we just kind of threw out there as a possible suggestion, that someone really didn't want to do something we asked them to do, but felt uncomfortable saying no. So that's one aspect of having power. Another aspect is that when we're in a position of power, it's a lot easier for us to say no. We don't feel as constrained by the situation as people in lower positions of power. We just have more autonomy. And one of the problems with that is that we assume that other people also have that kind of autonomy. We figure if we can say no to things, so can other people. And so again, we assume that if someone doesn't want to do something, if someone thinks that our direction doesn't make sense, they'll just speak up and say it because that's what we would do. But of course, when there is that power dynamic, that's not what people feel comfortable doing. And so in the end, the very time when people are taking our words the most seriously, we're sort of the least aware of that and monitoring ourselves the least. Wow. Okay. There are so many components of that that I think are really interesting to explore. One thing is just in terms of thinking about power in general, right? So we know there are all these structures of power in our society. And I would say most fundraisers would say that their funders have more power than them. And because they have 
financial resources and the nonprofit needs financial resources. In my course, which is called Power Partners, I talk and coach a lot around how to show up as a fundraiser at that table, embodied and empowered in really everything that you are bringing to the table, which is a tremendous opportunity, a ton of assets that are really valuable, and to really try to shift the power dynamic in that room. And what you said is really interesting. I do this thing in my course called Funder Lenses, where I sort of pull on design thinking principles to help fundraisers really see their organization through the eyes of different types of funders. And it's really interesting what you said, which I had not connected before. For, which the thing I say to fundraisers is, look, we live and breathe our organizations. It's impossible for someone outside of our organization to come in and see everything that we see. So we have to connect to where they're at and what they care about and the way they view the world and the change they're trying to make, because that's what's going to actually help us find that alignment, right? And so what's really interesting about what you're saying is that piece around power and the way it impacts our ability to see things in in other perspectives, it really sort of highlights the importance of translating the work that you're doing, aligning the work that you're doing through the lens of the funder, which I've also found to be just a really key component of fundraising, which I think is, is so interesting. And then the other thing that you're saying that just has massive implications is there are all these narratives in the nonprofit sector around restricted and unrestricted funding. And inside the nonprofit sector, I feel like a lot of the blame gets put on the funders for restricting their funding. And when it comes to foundations and grants, like, yes, often there are more official restrictions of fundings. But I have felt for a long time that we often, as the folks inside our organizations, perpetuate the restricted funding narrative by hearing pieces of ideas from funders and saying, oh, well, they really want to fund that truck. And it's like what they actually really want to fund is the impact of your organization. And they just said that really quickly because they think the truck is what makes the impact. But you could tell them a totally different story about how their funds could actually be better leveraged to make a bigger impact that would shift how they start to see things and then whether or not the funding is actually restricted or unrestricted. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think all these are such interesting points. And I think for sure where you sort of started about this idea that when you're the one seeking funds from this other party, right? And they're the ones who have the resources, they're not going to make the effort to really try to figure out where their resources are going to go. They're expecting you to make that effort, right? For you to make the connection, for you to explain it. And they're just not going to work as hard because that's not the position that they're in. So you really do have to work extra hard to get your perspective out there to make that connection, right? And not expect them to do the work. And I think in the same way, they may come up with just a little idea like this truck, this particular thing, the first thing that pops into their head. And I think that it's really easy to sort of run with that and see that as the one concrete thing that was put out there. Clearly, that's something they really want, as opposed to getting a little bit deeper and understanding the motivation behind that. Why is it that they focus on that particular kind of thing? And this reminds me actually of something I also talk about in the book, the difference between taking perspective and getting perspective. And so 
taking perspective is basically just trying to get into somebody else's head, but doing it by searching your own head, your own previous experiences, and not actually asking what that person really wants or is thinking and getting perspective, which is much more effective at figuring out what someone actually wants is asking them, right? Being explicit. What is it about this particular truck or whatever it might be that is really getting at your motivations, is really sort of satisfying your needs and actually finding out from them what their sort of deeper needs are. Do you want to come teach inside my course? Because (laughs) I love that. We talk about this too. And one of the questions I really encourage fundraisers to ask whenever a funder throws out like something like that is to say, what inspires you most about that project? Or I just heard you say that about the truck. Why does that excite you in terms of why you would want to invest in that? What are your beliefs about the impact of the truck, right? So really trying to get at because the truck is just the truck, but what does the truck mean to them? So I love, I love the way that you're talking about that. Exactly. And it it reminds me very much also of courses that I teach on negotiations where we talk about integrative negotiation, because in some ways this is a sort of negotiation, right? And if you really want to come up with a solution that benefits both parties, you want to be open about the underlying needs and motivations, not just the specific item that you're negotiating over. So what does that item mean to the other party? What does it mean to you? What other things could be done creatively that would have that same meaning. Mm. Okay. I love that. And because of the funders, perhaps lack of awareness around the power that they are exuding in a conversation with a fundraiser, does that mean because they don't have that perception or recognize that, does that mean that in fact, should a fundraiser say, well, that's a really interesting idea, but I was curious to talk to you about X, Y, and Z. Should a fundraiser challenge them, that would feel for them like they are in fact even being challenged because they haven't necessarily recognized that dynamic in the first place. I do think it makes sense in that case. I wouldn't even think of it as challenging, but just to ask follow-up questions, right? To, as we were talking about, understand more about the meaning of what that thing that happened to pop out is for that person. I think they almost expect to get some pushback. I think most people in positions like that are expecting a conversation, a back and forth. But I think that often when we're asking for something, we're so focused on getting something, on getting that yes, right? And having success and not being rejected that once we hear one little thing that, okay, this person would be amendable to giving this, we don't want to lose that. And we worry that if we challenge, all of a sudden the whole thing is going to blow up and it's going to end in us with having nothing. But that's usually not the way it goes. Usually you can ask for things in ways that really further the conversation and open up the conversation and isn't an aggressive back and forth distributive kind of thing where it's like the truck or nothing, right? That's usually not how people are thinking about things. Mm. Yeah. I think that's such an important point and has certainly been my experience in fundraising. And this all also ties back to how 
nonprofits build authentic and deep relationships with their funders. I mean, I think you bringing up the negotiation piece, I actually think is really valuable. And I can imagine that some fundraisers might be cringing a little bit at the thought that what they're doing is negotiation. But I think the reality is negotiation is one of those terms that has this stigma attached to it. But really, if you break it down to the point of it's about finding a mutually beneficial solution or opportunity. That's what this is really all about. And you had said earlier in part one, I think about this isn't some like one time thing, right? We're not cold calling, just trying to close this $25 gift before midnight, right? With these major donors, these big partners, corporate sponsors, the goal is to build long-term relationships. And so when you're doing that, when you're really trying to find that middle ground that's going to feel good for everyone moving forward. It takes more of this meeting at the table with both people feeling empowered to have this conversation. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. That's right. And you know, when I teach negotiations, the first day I ask people how many people really just hate negotiating. And most people in the class will say, I hate negotiating. And a lot of it is because they're thinking of it as this distributive sort of thing. And if you think of it exactly as you said, as two parties trying to find a mutually beneficial decision in this moment and hopefully a long-term arrangement, it's not so difficult to palette that the idea that we're negotiating. And one of the classic examples that some of your listeners may have heard if you've ever taken a negotiation class is the example of these two sisters who are both making a recipe and they're, they each call for an orange, right? And they each are squabbling over the orange. And in the end, they decide to cut the orange in half and One of them takes the orange and squeezes the juice into her recipe. And the other one peels the orange and uses the zest from the peel in her recipe. And so if they had actually explored the underlying motives behind why they needed the orange, one would have had all the juice and had everything they needed for the recipe. The other would have had all the zest and had everything they needed for the recipe. And it would have been a beneficial situation for everyone. But because they sort of treated it as this fixed pie and this distributive sort of situation, they missed out on a great opportunity. And I think thinking about ways in which you can open up a discussion so that you can see those kinds of integrative solutions is really important. Mm, I think that is so interesting. And I hadn't heard that story before, but yeah, as you were saying it, I was like, yeah, but their perception is it's a zero sum game, right? They're approaching that conversation from this scarcity mindset. And I think in the nonprofit sector, we do that so often related as well to what you said about, we don't want to miss this opportunity, right? We feel like, well, the funder would give a truck. Wouldn't it be better to start there? And then maybe next year I can talk to them about a bigger gift instead of just taking that moment to explore a little deeper and recognize that maybe the the funder 
isn't even that attached to the truck. They don't know all of the different components of your organization that are going to make that impact. And so I think that is so interesting. And I do want to highlight for folks, I mean, I hope they read your whole book, but one of the things I just sort of found fascinating were some of the stories you told around power and influence and the way that when we think we have a choice and when we don't. And you said a a piece of this earlier too, around how because people in power feel a fair amount of autonomy, they assume that other people feel that sense of autonomy too. And you, you share this story in the book around this basketball coach who had his team practice and do this strip free throw contest or something and how the coach thought it was like this optional exercise. And all of the players were like, actually, when your coach tells you to do something, you do it. And so there are all these structural power dynamics in society based on sometimes historical context, sometimes true power dynamics. I mean, I would feel the same way if a coach tells me to do something. That's why you're there, your coach, right? You think you listen to them. And so I think there's this narrative in the nonprofit sector around the relationship often between the funders and the nonprofits. And I think sometimes we don't even realize the sort of hoops we're jumping through unnecessarily because we aren't having these conversations. Yeah. And I think it's definitely possible that in these situations, I might throw out something like, oh, well, maybe I could fund this. And I want it to be genuinely helpful, right? I don't want my donation to be useless or just if I could have used that money in a way that was much more effective and I could actually feel like it was fulfilling my, you know, whatever my needs were or my goals were for that donation. But, and I assume that if that wasn't a great idea, someone will tell me, right? They'll push back. So there is this assumption that the other person has autonomy. The other person is going to come back with a better idea or shape this decision-making process. And I think in a lot of cases, as we talked about, we just jump on that and we don't push back and we don't necessarily see this optimal solution that could have been right there if a little more conversation was done. Mm. If there are funders listening to this, do you have suggestions for them in terms of their own awareness around the potential power dynamic and what they can do to perhaps be more aware of some of the dynamics in play? I think it helps to be clear that I really do want to make a contribution that's the most helpful. And maybe you also have another aspect that you're going for. And I want my name on something. And I want something that creates some positive PR. Whatever it is, I think being explicit about the sort of underlying reasons you're asking for a specific thing is the way to get to the optimal solution as opposed to kind of throwing something out there. And even if you do throw something out there, trying to back up yourself and explore like, why is it that this is so appealing to me, right? And then also making it a conversation actually explicitly saying, I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you see a better way to solve these needs or to you know, meet these needs of mine, please share that so that it can be more of a, a conversation. Mm. Okay. I love that. And it does beg a little question for me, which is you talk in your book a lot about kind of the things we do to avoid embarrassment. And I wonder about certain funders or donors and their ability to tap into their true desire to be philanthropists or to invest in certain things and even their own awareness or how you think someone might 
think or feel saying something like, I want my name on that thing. I mean, certain philanthropists have no problem saying that, but what you're talking about highlights this dance that's done in philanthropy and fundraising where no one is fully saying the things that they want, but because so many people have learned this dance, they're getting it. And I think what you and I both want is more transparency, or at least I'll speak for myself. What I want is more transparency in these conversations to say, it doesn't need to be a bad thing to say we want these things, but we need to talk about them and we need to not have this hidden agenda because then we're not going to actually find opportunities that are mutually beneficial and we're going to keep buying trucks and we're not going to solve these real global issues that it's time to solve. But I'm curious, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I would love more transparency and people to be more explicit and just basically communicate more clearly about the things that they really want. But I also completely agree that people, especially if it's like, I want my name on something, they're often embarrassed to admit that. And I think there's things that actually can be done on both sides to mitigate that. One thing is that if you're actually asking for funds, you can say, a lot of people like to have their name on it for this reason. So you're basically saying, this is a really common thing. We see it all the time. You're making it explicit, but you're not making it about them. So it doesn't feel like you're targeting them and saying, oh, I, you might want your name on something because you're that kind of person. It's no, many people like this. And so this is something that would give you that opportunity. This is another sort of negotiation tactic, but something even more subtle, if you don't want to go the explicit communication kind of way, is to give packages of options. And each of those options changes one little thing. Some of the options have a name attached, right? Some of the options have some other feature that a lot of donors tend to like. And then you look at the ones that they're most interested in and you could get a feel that, okay, these are the kinds of things that they like. And these commonalities in those things are that they all are, are situations where they can put their name out there or they're all situations that come with this package. So there are ways, I think, to get that information and also save face for the other person. But in an ideal world, I do think because there is this dance when everyone knows what the subtext is, that it would be great if people just felt comfortable saying, this is something I like when I donate. Mm, yes, I totally agree. And also so much of what you're talking about to me makes it clear why sometimes it's also easier to have these conversations with corporate funders or foundation funders. I'm thinking back to what you said in part one around how women in particular are more comfortable advocating for something when they're advocating for something else. And I think about the level of transparency sometimes that happens in a corporate sponsorship meeting around. And I've even had marketing folks. I had this VP of marketing once tell me, I'm so sorry to ask this, but can you tell me how many impressions we would get on that? Because I have to report back to our CEO about this investment. And I was like, you're so sorry to ask this. I want this to be beneficial to your marketing. No, ask me all the things. And so there is that level of discomfort that I just feel like we need to create more space for and say, it's okay to have a personal reason for doing things. There does need to be that component to really find that mutual benefit. Otherwise we fall into the like martyrdom route, which isn't good for the sector. It's not good for giving all of those things. So, okay. I could talk to you forever, but, <laughs> but I want to be conscious of time. So let's just wrap up with having you tell folks where they can find you and I'll make sure there are links for the book and everything below. And then if you'd like to highlight a nonprofit that is near and dear to your heart, we love to invite our guests to do that as well. 
So you can find me at my website, which is www.vanessabonds.com. And you can also follow me on at Prof Bonds on Twitter and at Prof Bonds at Instagram. Of course, the book can be found anywhere, Amazon, your local bookshop, et cetera. And actually, I would love to highlight a scientific organization that I love, which is the Open Science Framework. They've made really big strides in fixing the replicability crisis that we've been having in psychology. And I think they do a lot of important work for science and making sure that all the kinds of research findings that I'm talking to you about now are actually replicable and people can check the data and that there's not a bunch of bunk science going around. So that would be a great organization to donate to. Amazing. Thank you. And we'll connect folks with them as well. Thank you so much for joining me today and for having this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. This is such a great interview for fundraisers, but also for your board members and your donors. Having more awareness around this will help everyone navigate those unspoken elements at play when there are assumed power dynamics. One of the pieces I'm really focused on is how to help donors comfortably recognize the power and influence they have with nonprofits and to help everyone be able to be more transparent around what they need and what a good and mutually beneficial partnership looks like for them. Not all money is created equal, and not all money is good money for your organization. When we realize that and we focus on alignment-first methodology, we're going to find and secure long-term strategic partnerships that not only make our fundraising more sustainable and reliable, but they feel so much better too. There were so many takeaways from this episode, so head on over to ValerieErickson.com backslash podcast to get access to everything right now. You'll also find more information there about Vanessa's incredible work and how to connect with her and buy her book. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. If you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.